What? Hello and welcome to Good Is In The Details. I am your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and joining me today, guest host, writer, producer, gadfly, Jacob Weber. I've decided that I would like it to be writer, producer, cardiothoracic surgeon, and hostage negotiator. You see how the bell is tuning you out? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was God invalidating my... You could, have, you could have mentioned this before we start recording. I'm sorry. Sorry. But I'm mentioning it now. But, you know, is... you're forgiven because you have a very cool car and you drove today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. Those are terrible values, man. We're going to talk about... Oh, you know what? Excuse you. <laughs> yeah. We are in California. We are in California. We are at Cal Poly Pomona in 90 degree weather. And we had iced coffees. We're ready to go. We're going to talk about madness. Favorite subject. Favorite subject. Today, our guest is Professor of Ethnic and Women's Studies. She is working on a book about sins invalid. Welcome, Shada Kafai. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Okay. So let's talk about your TED Talk, The Language of Madness. Yes. Okay. What brought you to do a TED Talk about madness? Every TEDx series has a theme. The theme of this round that we did on campus was called Ripple Effect. So it was very general and we could take it wherever we wanted to. And up to this point, so much is embedded in this conversation. Yeah. Up to this point, I had done workshops around disability and ableism. I had taught it in my courses and I was actually doing a closed chat at the Pride Center for disabled queer students, but I had never disclosed in a really public way before um, my own madness, especially on campus. And I know for a lot of folks, myself included, there's so much risk involved with that, right? Are you, is your job gonna be secure if you disclose? Um, how are you going to be read if you disclose? So it was one of these moments that I started to see as a gift and as an opportunity to start to be more of myself and just bring my political self in alignment with who I am on campus. Like that was a huge part that was missing. What was the response from your students who have seen it? So now that you have disclosed this and it was something that you were nervous about, what has been the response? Or do you have students who can really relate and say, okay, now I can say this or? Before you answer that question, can I offer just a pinch of context? Because yes. I, I realize that you're doing an amazing job. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what you so because I'm uninitiated, so let me just is you did a TED talk mm. a, apart from your the focus of your PhD and your teaching mm -hmm. where you discussed madness. That's yes. what Gwen is referring to. Yes. Okay. Oh yeah, we should go there. So I was diagnosed with manic depression when I was 17, and so it entered in different ways into my work and into my research, but it was never directly something I disclosed. Okay, thanks for, for yes. clearing that up for me. Okay, you may continue, Gwen. <laughs> Thank you. Well, maybe that's one of the things, because you're, something that's really hot now, people talk about intersectionality. So how does this discussion about madness weave its way into discussions about, I don't know, ethnic and women's studies? Oh my goodness. Does it? So, oh, absolutely. Okay. So actually, I think because we do such a good job in the world talking about how race and gender speak to one another and how race and sexuality speak to one another and your immigration status speaks to all of these things, I think because we do such a good job of addressing those issues and talking about those identities, 
we still culturally are not at a place where we can include disability into that conversation. We're just not there yet because disability is something that's so stigmatized and non-disability is so normalized. And when you say disability, because this is a unique piece here, as I understand it, even in the academic universe, you are including madness or mental illness as a disability. That Not everyone sees it in those terms, but you're asserting that's part of what you are asserting in your TED Talks. Yeah, I mean, in critical disability studies as its own disciplinary universe, folks with chronic illnesses, um, folks with physical disabilities, non-visible disabilities, folks that are neurodiverse, folks that have either psychiatric disabilities, are mad, some folks don't say mental illness, but whatever word that you do use. Yeah. If you have a body-mind that interferes with your daily activities, that makes moving through this world that's not made for all bodies and all minds difficult and laborious, and if you require access and accommodations and your access needs are not always met because our world is not made for, for disabled body minds, then you have a disability. And that includes access to personality disorders as well? Like, what like you... in other words, uh, access to like personality disorders as distinct from obsessive compulsive issues or anxieties, depression, bipolarity, all those things are, how do you differentiate? Per- personality, like uh, uh, what's a personality disorder? Borderline personality or, or histrionic or being a sociopath or some of these issues that uh, historically were seen as untreatable by the psychiatric community. Where do those fit in or do they fit in? It's interesting because I think I think because we haven't talked about disability enough in the same ways that we talk about other identities, even the language, we need to even play and consider our language. So disorder is a language or is a term that we challenge mm-hmm. in, in critical disability studies. What does it mean to call a person disordered, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the big, I think, things too that has to happen is just the words that we use to define people has to shift if we want to be inclusive of all our different identities and if we want to be truly intersectional. It starts with the words we use and then it starts with how we view our bodies and our minds. But a lot of those experiences that you just listed, I would categorize just for myself under a psychiatric disability, Mm -hmm. right? It's a a madness, it's an illness of the mind, right? But it's not necessarily something that goes away or leaves forever. Sometimes it's fluid and sometimes... No, I was going to say a lot of those disorder, disor- I, I see them as a disorder, but that's my, you know, but a lot of those, what they call the access to disorders are, don't, don't, are considered almost untreatable. In other, in other words, they don't go away even for a moment. They're, mm-hmm. They are, tend to be less fluid than other types of disorders where, you know, people can and do seek treatment for it. Mm-hmm. But part of what you're talking about is the degree to which the culture at large that we live in can accommodate those folks, so not just how they seek treatment for themselves, but that there there is an idea within the, this critical study, the platform to actually try and find ways to nudge the culture to make room for the disabled. So Yeah, sort of. It's kind of like viewing disability not as a stigmatic thing that some people experience. One in five folks in the U.S. has a disability, and it's also about really challenging the idea that there is such a thing as a normal body and a normal mind. And I think when that shifting of that thinking happens, 
that's when we can think about our body minds in more inclusive ways, more intersectional ways. Right. I was also interested in the way you talk about the, how this is portrayed in pop culture or in film. Um, yeah. Your first image was of Girl Interrupted. Uh, but there was another image you had from A Beautiful Mind. And I'm wondering what you thought how the film portrayed it was schizophrenia, right? The yeah. professor? Yeah. 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 What did you, because even the title itself isn't a negative one, a, a beautiful mind, but what did you think of the way he was portrayed? Mm. Can I have more than one answer? Of course. <laughs> of course. I mean, the, the fact that you brought in, you know, the way that maybe we our concept of mental illness comes from these big references, the way that it's portrayed, and I thought, oh, okay, what is... When you see that, when you see something like a beautiful mind or girl interrupted, mm. what is going through your head? Because it's going to be different than what yeah. I'm thinking. I'm not even realizing that I'm getting information, you know, of how I should then perceive somebody. So, yeah, what is going through your mind when you see stuff like that? So I have, like, a part one and a part two. Okay. So part one is because there's so few movies about disabilities, period, the first part of my brain thinks, okay, this is exciting because this is representation on one hand, right? And then part two starts to think more critically about, well, exactly what is being represented and how is it being communicated to us? I think it was a true story, right? His experience, Uh Nash's experience. But what I think it kind of fit into for me as somebody who watches movies, but also somebody who's disabled and somebody who does activism in that area and writing in that area. So many of the movies that I've seen about disabled folks follow the narrative of either curing death or overcoming. So either at the end of the movie, the person with a disability is cured. If they're not curable, they often die at the end of the movie. And then in regard to that film in particular, The Beautiful Mind, you have this like lineage of overcoming right you're struggling but you overcame and you know wonderful things happened because you overcame and I guess I see that kind of as a pitfall in cinema and storytelling because that what if you it kind of sets it up you are a valuable disabled body mind if you overcome what if you don't have the access and the resources to do that where does your value lie are you valuable anymore Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the two places that I go to when I think of those movies. So maybe a more honest representation would be how you exist with it instead of overcoming it. Mm -hmm. What it means to be human is you're fragile as human. Yeah, and like the idea too that everybody is, well not everybody, there's this mythology that if you are non-disabled you are more powerful because you're independent and you can do things for yourself and you don't need to rely on anybody else and one of the biggest like stereotypes of disabilities that you're a burden um, and you're in, you're dependent on other people to help you. And one of the biggest frameworks that we're trying to flip on its head is that actually everybody is interdependent so that that power dynamic doesn't exist anymore because that's the truth. Even if you're non-disabled, you rely on your friends for rides, for food sharing, for resource sharing. There is no such thing as independence in that way. I think I'm wondering if when it comes to disability in general, mm-hmm. that there isn't a, a fear that somebody is confronting their own fear by seeing somebody oh for sure that that's huh because you're just this awareness that uh we are fragile but as you say i mean throughout the course of one's life you know there different things will strike us nobody maybe it's that realization that nobody is really 
free of this because also this can happen in older age i mean maybe that's what it almost said. inevitably does ha- i mean the incidence of mental illness goes up mm-hmm. remarkably as the mind ages right especially if you look at the stats for alzheimer's now and dementia and various other forms of neurodegenerative diseases that hit at, at a certain point but it is interesting it strikes to the basic American myth, which we've talked about repeatedly on the podcast, this notion of freedom, freedom. Yeah. and independence being so interwoven with our, our identity as Americans. That's also ableist, right? This idea that it discounts nurturing. It discounts the, the joy of sharing or of nurturing. That's what I think. The, the fetishizing of that myth does. I think that having the myth is can be an empowering thing whether you're able-bodied or not, knowing that you're part of a culture that... Uh, I mean, these myths are, are loaded. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They're not made for everybody. Uh, or they're not... They don't... Yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to shut myself down here. Like, <laughs> no, Biden, no, it's my great. time is up. Let's see. There was uh, something you said that you would like to see this being discussed in the same way somebody says they have diabetes. Oh, Could yes. Could you expand on that? What do you mean by that? I think that there's this, okay, you know what, let me back it up. So for example, if somebody says to another person that they have diabetes, they have, they have cancer, there are certain reactions that we are trained and taught to give that are really distinct to the reaction of someone disclosing about madness or about a psychiatric disability. Um, and I think one of the big things that like stands out for me when I think about this is the moral judgment that's placed on the person. So you are going to get a very different reaction if somebody calls and says, I can't come to work today, you know, I have the flu, I don't know, I have a migraine, I'm sorry, I can't come, versus my depression is so bad, I can't get out of bed today. I really need to take the day off. And I feel like the ways in which the person gets viewed from that point on shifts because there's this moral judgment cast on the person, their stability, their clarity, their coherence, that is so radically different than saying there's something physically wrong with my body versus there's something wrong with my mind, with my emotions, with how I'm perceiving those things. What if we started to understand it, just as you say with diabetes, what if we start to understand depression as a physical state because it has a physical important mm. remedy to it? That there was, That's what I was thinking of with the language of madness, that there seems to be this fundamental misunderstanding that mental states are it's part of brain activity that it's not just some thought bubble floating around that has absolutely no uh, physical reality that it has a physical reality mm-hmm. what do you think <laughs> yeah can no. we do it can we get it's, this done yes, I'm, I'm stuck I mean, on this idea of as diabetes I that was one of the most revelatory things that I oh, heard awesome I had never it, it was you're absolutely right if somebody says, I have diabetes, I would have a different reaction than somebody says, um, I have depression. And I'm trying to think, I didn't realize that I had that discrepancy until you said it. But when I sit back and think about it, both are actually a physical uh, a physical reality. But uh, go ahead. Well, no, I mean, I think it'd be huge to do that because if somebody did say I have diabetes, you'd be like, hey, check your insulin. Did you check your insulin? Did you take your insulin? But if someone like I've, I've heard this from friends, you know, if somebody's taking medication for the physical manifestations of their psychiatric disability, people sometimes say, well, you don't really need it. It's like you're doing better right now, right? Like you don't really need your medication. There's this disqualification that happens and 
Yeah, I mean that would be a powerful culture. People who are not. Did you take your thorazine? Did you take your lithium? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, can you imagine like if friends did check-ins on each other and just said, you know, I mean, I know some communities do this. I'm very fortunate to be in a community of friends and family that do those kinds of check-ins. But can you imagine if like somebody said, "Hey, I think I need therapy," and people were like, "Hey." Let's celebrate this. I'm going to walk you to the therapist's office. I'm going to find you a therapist. Instead of shaming people for that same comment. Well, I, I'm of several minds as we're talking about this. I I've, uh, have been part of a sober community for mm. 10, 11 years. Somewhere between 10 and 11 years. And from a family that worships the talking cure. So sort of analysis in one form or another has been mm. part of my life for since I was three there are ways in which what you're saying it sounds like a breath of fresh air, right? You know, and where people are able to understand and destigmatize anxiety, depression, bipolarity, addiction issues, ideally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's there is to go back to this American myth of freedom and free will, and you know, there, there is a degree to which it is still upon us to be reliable to our those who count on us in a professional or familial context that we need to show up and at least be uh, transparent enough so that they know what to expect from us. I think one of the reasons that it is some of these conditions are not viewed purely along um, physical lines are that they have other components that aren't physical. Yeah. Um, they have they have psychological. They have uh, some some of us believe spiritual components. Um, emotional components, things that need to be addressed and maintained by some regimen, by the individuals who suffer. So it is understandable why folks are, uh, why someone from the able-bodied or able-minded community, or at least someone who perceives themselves as being from that community, might not know how to handle uh, or even through what lens to look at these issues when it comes to relying on someone who might suffer from them. Yeah, I mean... From a really young age, I'm thinking like kindergarten, middle school, we segregate our student populations, right? So a lot of us don't have disabled friends. Um, I mean, I remember in my elementary school, we had, it was like split into two parts. So one part were the quote unquote normal, non-disabled students. And I'm like, for people who can't see what I'm doing, I'm like making huge air quotes around the word normal because I don't think it exists. (laughs) I can confirm that she is making it. <laughs> um, and so we had this like really aggressive segregation between disabled and non-disabled students. So we, from a very young age, I mean, if anybody else's school setup was like this, we don't know how to engage with disabled folks, and that fits into so many other aspects of our culture, like capitalism, and like we want bodies to be producing to be successful. And I mean, there's so many elements that are attached to this, but. Going back to the showing up part, I think that one of the big frameworks that I'm coming from is a disability justice framework that says many things, but one of the biggest things is if we can just share our access needs with one another in a safe way, then we can be celebrated for our strengths. That's one of its principles. What is an access need? It could be anything. It could be for example, some of the access needs that my, sh- my students have shared in class or that I've shared with my students if I come to class and I'm feeling really anxious or depressed. Students have said, hey, like, I have fibromyalgia. I'm going to need to stretch and stand up during class sometimes. Like, I'll go to the corner, but just so you know, I want to be present, but I need to move my body and stretch. Um, folks have said, hey, I want to be in class, but 
I have chemical sensitivities. Please don't wear strong perfumes in class, colognes, deodorants, things like that. I had a student who came to class with a migraine, so we turned half the lights down so she could stay and be present. If I'm coming with a lot of brain fog and anxiety, I will ask the students to like give me um, understanding and a little bit of pause if I'm moving slower through the like the conversation or if I like pause to process what they're saying longer than I normally would, right? Um, or if I need to take a break. And so I think we can all show up for each other in our unique radical ways if we can create a climate where we can share whatever it is we need to be present and to show up. It's fascinating. Yeah, and I, t- I totally think it's possible. So like I'm, which is why I did the TED Talk, right? Like as, as a way to start initiating. So this is something that now happens in my classrooms and then hopefully can happen on a larger scale. I don't know. I'm, I mean, on certain days when I'm feeling optimistic, I say, yes, this can happen. And on the days when I'm feeling more pessimistic, I think there's going to be more of a struggle. But I still think this is such a small, powerful gesture. Yeah, um, people who have come out, who have come out and said, I have depression or or any other kind of a mental illness, what do you think when they do that, that, is that helpful? Because then the public can see, oh, okay, this is somebody I've been admiring and following their career and they're open about this and that kind of destigmatizes the issue? Yeah, I think... I think for anybody to step into that space of vulnerability to name either a visible or non-visible disability is space holding for other folks and it opens it opens an opportunity for conversation. So I think one of the questions you asked in the beginning, and I don't think I answered it, was... It's probably Jacob's fault. I, I know sure. for a fact that Pretty it was sure. my fault. Yeah. Also, I'm going to throw out, as far as segregated, I went to a Catholic school. The boys and the girls were segregated. We had to sit at different tables. We weren't allowed to play. look. You look horrified. <laughs> no, I'm trying to understand what when. We're, oh, as far as segregated, you're just talking about like, segregation. Yeah, I was in general. thinking about that when she said able versus. I'm like, oh, we were girls versus boys. We weren't allowed to sit next to each other or play together. Yeah, but that was, was Catholic school. Keep your minds it was clean. Evil. Yeah. But the thing is that my mind was clean. I had no concept that there was something wrong until then. They not according introduced. to Catholic doctrine. Your mind wasn't clean. <laughs> it's was a cesspool. Anyway, excuse you. Yeah. Okay, so back to. What did, what did, <laughs> you pulled us away again, well, Jacob. I did. I did. <laughs> that one, that one, I will take responsibility. Thank you. Finally, that's because you Some brought me iced coffee, and look at what happened. Yeah. we're both a little and jacked up. Mind. Yeah. Okay. So, um, what was the question that you hadn't answered? Oh yes. So, I'm really enjoying this conversation. By the way. Oh good. I, I am want too. To put that out there. Jacob likes it as well. Yeah. I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to <laughs> detour us a third time. <laughs> Um, the question was like, so what happened? I had this fear. I did the talk. What happened? And it goes to what you're talking about now. What happened was people started coming up to me and sharing their similar experiences. So either sharing similar experiences and saying, I haven't told this to anyone before, but either coming to me during office hours and saying, hey, this has been happening to me. I think I, think I need therapy. I don't know what it is, though. What is it? People came up to me and said, hey, I think, I I don't know what hospitalization is, but I think I might need it. What is it? So it kind of opened up room for answering questions that had gone unanswered in people's lives for a long time, which kind of affirmed to me the process and the power of just being radically vulnerable. Yeah, well, with narrative, something that's that's so important in existentialism is 
let's say something like with death contemplation, that we have biological answers. We understand what is the end of life. But if somebody close to you dies, that doesn't, that doctor's explanation does not really help how you deal with the loss of somebody. Yeah. Or, you know, a psychologist can say you will go through these, is it five stages of grief? The Kubler-Ross model is seven, I think. Okay. And then <laughs> we'll go through those stages of grief. But that still doesn't explain what it is like for me to grieve. And that's what really struck me when you said, okay, I can give the stats, which is the, the rational, but I need to let you know what it is like for me to go through this. And that's, those stories are, are extremely important. Oh, absolutely. Is it different for men? Do you know anything about that in terms of, is, let's say, young male students or any men that you know who have discussed? I'm sitting this? right here. With <laughs> oh, yeah. Just looking right past me. You know, it's interesting because I think there's been a lot, I don't think, I've, I've read a lot of writing on how norms around masculinity are perhaps the volume is turned up on them when we think about physical disabilities and male-identified folks. If anybody has like a, a movie list, watch Murderball. It's mm. a documentary and you'll kind of see what I'm talking about. And But it, it's really interesting because, yes, you can have a disability and be sexist, right? Um, like those things don't. No, they might in fact be amplified by virtue of your own, the, the hit your own self-image as a man has taken by virtue of this lack of potency around your physical body right and it's it's interesting because i i have experienced these very vulnerable tender conversations with male identified students just as much as i have with women identified students and it was unexpected but i think it speaks to this larger shift in realization that people need to share their stories Mm -hmm. period regardless of how you identify there's this need to share stories and there's a lot of conversation now too around like toxic masculinity and what that means and i feel like male identified students are really kind of having these conversations with themselves and with their like friends and this idea of opening up to survive is really coming up and happening for folks for everybody no this is, I'm just talking about like my microcosm of, you know. Male identified. EWS students. Right. Right, or students that are taking my classes. I, I, can, I can add, all joking aside, that a lot of the recovery that I sought out when I got sober, I know this interview isn't about me, but I'll share this piece because I've witnessed, I've been specifically sought out stag, men's recovery mm-hmm. groups. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to simplify things initially when I first got sober to get away from anything that I might be using the meetings for that wasn't recovery. I mean, you, you use the phrase to survive, you know, that idea that yes. vulnerability, if you can't connect with that vulnerability, accept it, express it, and connect around it, you're imperiled. You're, you're, you're living in a way that's totally not uh, on a human scale, on a scale that you t- mentioned access needs, right? You're out of touch with your own access needs for survival. Mm-hmm. And the longer I've spent uh, in conversation with other, what, what's the phrase? Ident- self-identified males? Uh-huh. What's the academic? I, I, I'm going to be the non-academic just... voice in this conversation. Dudes. Dudes, yeah. <laughs> bros. <laughs> Me and my bros. No, but, you know, in fact, not, uh, not even coincidentally or not even ironically, I, I've move so much further away from that notion of the of brohood and the toxic masculinity that I was living with before I got sober. 
I, you just inst- you're you are drawn away from it like a, a hand from a flame. Uh, was you look for all the things that are going to help affirm your help affirm your survival. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed other men doing the same thing. They're just they're running towards their vulnerabilities and towards expressing them and understanding them. I, 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 otherwise, you know, there's nothing to hold on to. I don't, anyway, that's not a question. I'm just telling you guys that. <laughs> High five. I'm no, just mansplaining it. it yeah. No, <laughs> no, that's good. Yeah, have you seen the documentary, The Mask You Live In? It's no. about boys and boyhood and like all the messages that boys receive <sighs> around masculinity and how they're starting to unlearn them. And it, it is by talk, by having groups where like everybody gets together and they start talking about their feelings and why it's so hard to communicate them. It's that title sounds so familiar. The mask you live in. The mask. Live in. Okay, I'm writing that down. So, of course, you know, just I had no idea that this was going to happen. But over the weekend, I couldn't help but think about you know, in preparing to see you, and how mental illness is talked about. Then, of course, all over the news this weekend, mental illness is brought up. So, I have to ask you, what goes through your mind when? There's a school, or not a school shooting, but just a mass shooting, and people are saying this person is mentally ill. What? What is? Where my... they blame it on the mental illness, or just where it's discussed? They blame it. They say this person is obviously mentally ill, um, and so that because then that disallows a discussion about guns or anything else. It's a way to just kind of pinpoint. Well, that's what I'm thinking when I see it, and it's only with a white shooter that that is brought up. Yeah. So we're specifically talking about the two mass shootings that happened Dayton this weekend. And where else was it? El Paso? El Paso, Texas, yeah. yeah. There, I, there was two shootings. Was, I think yeah. there was a third that, uh, that was smaller. California? Yeah, it was up at the like a festival or well, there was oh, the that garlic. was a few weeks a week a week ago. I think about a week ago. The it, fact that there's so many in such close proximity is terrifying, period. Two hundred and fifty that were at to date. But as you're talking about this stigma and then I couldn't help but think, oh, yes, because now when people hear mental illness, they're associating it with a person who goes and shoots up a Walmart, right? Yeah, I think, so I think in that context, people are using that phrase. I mean, okay, look, for all the things that I read online, these folks were white supremacists and this is terrorism. Like they were going in places and shooting up people of color, period. Yeah. Right, so I think that oddly enough to say mental illness is a word that forgives the racism and that forgives this issue of white supremacist ideology and that forgives that this is actually an act of terrorism we're terrorism doesn't have a skin color that's not part of the definition of being a terrorist and you see that people are assuming it is part of the definition of a terrorist and that's why it's called mental illness i think it functions in another way that's even more, a little more underhanded, right? If you call someone mentally ill and you personally don't identify as mentally ill, then, well, what does this have to do with me and with all the well-intentioned friends that support the National Rifle Association and the right to carry and stockpiling AR-15s? We have nothing to do with this. It's only the wackadoos. Now, the rest of us may have whatever feelings we have about uh making America great again or our own sort of right to whatever goods and services we now feel blocked out of by minorities and immigrants. But we're not going to act on it in an irresponsible way. It's only these wackadoos that are. 
that to me is how I always read the mental illness piece because it's, and it's a way of exotic, it makes mentally ill, exotic, different, other, and it's a way of distancing yourself from that radical continuum, the, the continuum that leads to that radical hate and action. I don't know. No, I don't think it exotifies it. I mean, I think it demonizes it. It makes it like the scary other person. Oh, that's not me. Um, I just think... Since a professional who says, I have mental illness, is then looped into that definition of the the dangerous person, that those two things end up getting linked. Yeah, and, you know, I think the last time I checked the statistic of a person who is actually diagnosed with a psychiatric disability... Coinciding with a violent behavior is 1%. Wow. It's incredibly low. And so I just think... 1%. I think this this strategy that the media uses to say, no, this is a, this is someone with... I'm going to use the phrase mental illness. And I'm putting quotes around that also, air quotes. Confirmed um, air quotes. <laughs> I, it's a really easy way to say, I don't want to talk about the racism in the country right now and why this shooting happened. And so... I'm going to use this other term because, because it's petty fogs. It, it, huh? Because it, I'm going to use this other term to sort of fog the turf, so no, you can't really see the. Is that what you mean? Yeah, like to. We're not calling. We we're talking about it in this room, but I don't. I think we're using one phrase: mental illness so that we don't really call out the racism that is rampant in our country right now. Mm-hmm. I, I don't disagree with that. I think there's... And I'm talking specifically about these cases that happened this weekend. Right. Yeah, and I guess it depends. Case by case, there are, there are differences. I, I was focused on the fact that the gun lobby uses that phrase mentally ill a lot as a way mm-hmm. of differentiating or giving their members a pat on the back and you know stiff-arming the... those who are calling for gun reform that they go hey back up Mm -hmm. uh these guys are these guys right here with the card in their pocket that give to our organization these guys are all right they're they're not cuckoo for cocoa puffs they're straight shooting americans who aren't gonna you know shoot kids well exactly it's the we're we're good they're bad right so it's setting up this very rigid definition of People that are sane are good and peaceful and, you know, safe. And people that are labeled the opposite are unsafe and dangerous and treacherous and must be villainized. For, yeah, if they're not villainized, the guns get vilified, you know. Yeah. And, and, and if the guns do. We don't want to blame the guns. Don't blame the guns. Don't blame the person, the shooter, not the guns. Or not see of a bigger problem of a societal problem of racism, mm-hmm. yeah, or right. white supremacy is just. Yeah, so I think either of those issues, the gun lobby and the and the white supremacy, are both uh, to be protected, and and it has the double value of you've scapegoated these Looney Tunes, quote unquote. I'm doing using your quotes I when I said confirm. Looney Tunes. Thank okay. you. <laughs> I can confirm. Um, you know, you've scapegoated people who are who are mentally ill. You've so you've protected the guns, you've protected the racism, and then you've doubled down on this idea of what it means to be... I mean, go back, going back to this notion that we were talking about earlier, this myth of American freedom and part, independence, part of that was is tied into the notion of being armed. That's the whole argument that keeps getting retread, this idea of the Second Amendment being a... Uh, meant to protect states' rights and protect us from, you know, the nanny state, and we have to fight off Big Brother. 
it doubles down on the American myth of freedom and it doubles down on recriminating those with mental illness and other issues. It's a very, very, I mean, it's about as toxic a myth as, as we mm-hmm. have. And, it, you know, criminalizing too, that you said too, like criminalizing folks that have psychiatric disabilities. I mean, our largest, after Ronald Reagan closed state hospitals, our largest treatment facility for all intents and purposes in the state of California is the prison system for people that have psychiatric disabilities. Yeah. I mean, you are incarcerated. So, I mean, that idea too of who we consider good, who we consider bad, who we consider safe and unsafe gets woven into that, into that complex as well. Not to complete, just to go back a little bit, not to fully demonize the right on this issue, there were many voices on the left that were calling during the time of Reagan to release everyone from the state-run mental institutions for decent reason they were very poorly run and in a lot of cases didn't there wasn't oh, the nuance sure. or the but but there really were voices on both sides of the aisle saying let these people loose and you know they are now like you said there's two places where you can find folks who would have otherwise have been in an institution like that in prison and the other places all over my neighborhood all over Los Angeles all over I mean the homeless population is it's in either LA a, right now it, it's in, so bad yeah well we've tripled or something our homeless population and obviously some of that has to do with the opioid a lot of it has to do with the opioid crisis but then those are sort of like prefab mental like the opioid crisis makes more mental illness because it in in a way it induces addictive disorder in folks who might not otherwise have developed it right yeah i mean the yeah psychiatric institutions were some of them were horrendous another documentary to watch that documents the institutions and what they were like as titty cut follies. What? What is it called? Titty. <laughs> Did I hear you right? That yeah. was a fourth titty. grade response right Titty there. cut follies. Titty cut follies. It was this, it's this filmmaker. They aired it. They were going to air it. I, wait, hold on. Gwen is still, is Gwen, just for the record, Gwen is sitting on the floor holding her head in shock. <laughs> my, my Catholic school brain is like, am yeah. I hearing See, that's right? why you were segregated from the boys. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Am I hearing it right? Yeah. Okay. What is Titty Cut? Maybe if you say that, Gwen will relax. So Titty Cut Follies was this like name of a um, an evening of acting and singing that this institution, the psychiatric institution, would put on once a month for the amusement of the guards and the people that worked there, right? And so this filmmaker was like, hey, I think y'all are doing an amazing job. I just want to come in and record what you do here. But really, he was going in undercover to capture the abuses. Oh, the this trauma. was the famous documentary that, that helped influence. And the... got banned for like a long time. I ended up getting a bootleg from someone in London. Yeah, but now it's like out and you can actually access it. But this influenced legislation. Yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a New York, upstate New York or something? I think so. And so it's that's the name of the documentary is this show they put on for the benefit of the guards once a month. Wow. What gives you hope? Like, what is a shift that you've seen or in your studies that maybe in the last decade that you've seen, oh, wow, we are actually moving. Are we moving towards what one of um, your aims is, is talking about, let's say, manic depression, like diabetes? Are we getting there? What is... What is the hope? What is the good news? I love that we're ending. Like, we've just trudged through, like... Muck. Yeah! And now we're, <laughs> we're like, white supremacists, now let's get to the hope stuff. <laughs> yeah, cause I, I, I think we do... 
we do need to acknowledge and honor the labor that's happening and the goodness that's happening because it is, right? Good things are happening. So my hope is very much rooted in the disability justice practices that I'm bringing to campus and into my classrooms. I'm part of the Access and Disability Alliance. It's like a faculty, student, staff, disability group at Cal Poly. We put on workshops, we screen movies, we bring folks to give talks. Um, Can you talk about Sin Invalid? Is that part of your hope? Sin's Invalid is definitely part of my hope. They are, okay, side note, I have this little altar on the side of my desk, my workspace, with photos of my queer disabled people of color mentors and quotes. So I'm like sitting at my desk and viewing this hope on a daily basis, which has Mm -hmm. been nourishing and helpful. Sins and Ballad is a San Francisco-based performance project, and they are bringing together performance and art making that really centers artists that are queer, non-binary, transgender, disabled people of color. You have to be, you have to meet all three criteria in order to participate. Well, in a way, because So the backstory is the disability rights movement was beautiful, and I I wouldn't be sitting here if the disability rights movement didn't exist. It really created space for us to look at how to really honor and respect all of our body minds, right, regardless of if we're disabled or not. But it also excluded large groups of folks. It excluded disabled folks of color, queer disabled folks. Um, So disability justice and the work that Sins and Ballad does is to really bring all the folks that were left behind back and center them. They are absolutely, the work they produce and the activism they produce are absolutely part of my hope because I think storytelling, art making is how change happens also. Can I ask, is there any one or two members of that group that you feel personally moved by or might want to talk about? Or is that... I love them all. Um. (laughs) Safe answer. So Patricia Byrne and Leroy um, F. Moore Jr. were kind of the two friends that initiated this movement and this work um, in collaboration with so many other folks. And so their work in particular really just emboldens me to keep moving forward. And if a listener wanted to find their work, they'd be able to just Google them by name and find or go through the group? Yeah, so they can, um, I believe it's sinsinvalid.org www.sinsinvalid.org. Um, S-I-N-S. I-N-V-A-L-I-D. And they can see clips of previous performances. They can see the work that they're doing in the community. Yeah, thanks for asking that. Yeah. I forgot that piece. Well, Gwen mentioned it up front, but I realized maybe folks missed it. Yeah. And it sounded like it spoke to... It sounds like a really cool project. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because I'm just thinking about what what it would feel like to be so outside, to have, you know, all, I mean, and it's, to be, it sounds really cool to have a project where bringing people together like that, mm-hmm. where you can say, oh, okay, I'm part of a group, I'm part of a community, if yeah. you've been just historically outside of that community. And even outside of the outsiders who yes. are... Yes. I remember that feeling as a kid being uh, not even included in the sort of drags at the bot who got pulled pulled onto the basketball team like as the third stringers and being like I will never I will never rank I will never be visible I will never you know and that was in the context of a dumb game but when you're talking about life and the idea of like well I have weight I'm just 
I have too many hyphenates to really ever be included and to have my voice ever be heard, to be able to be pulled into that community is must be incredibly affirming. Yeah, I mean, the first show I went to, I saw people that looked like me, people that were wheelchair users, cane users. There was a quiet room that if you felt too stimulated, you can just go and hang out in. Yes, it was magical. Where is the U.S. in terms of, is the U.S. leading on this or are we behind? Like how are, let's say, do you know anything about how Western European nations are doing with access or if we were to have some sort of a role model, do you know anything about that? Brunei. What? Sorry, that was a horrible joke. (laughs) Probably one of the worst transgressors in terms of... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, no, because when you said wheelchair, I I was even saying this, I lived in Belgium for a while and there was like, we had no elevators, like everything's cobblestone and I remember one day just realizing that I didn't see people in wheelchairs but Ah. then I realized because the access isn't it's it would be much more difficult so in some ways um the U.S. has you know building codes like you cannot make a building without access for a wheelchair um so I'm just wondering in terms of disability where does the U.S. are we are we ahead are we behind when it comes to treatment so with access and just Please don't. <laughs> okay, staying. And don't go to the Hotel Bel Air. Yes, because... It's owned by the Sultan of Brunei. Okay, that's that's valuable. Thanks. Thanks for, <laughs> thanks for adding that. Okay. I'm not going to be a part know, of the next project. You, I'm wondering, where is Denmark on this, or Norway, or Sweden? So, I don't know about outside the U.S. I know okay. that the U.K. has done really amazing work around disability studies scholarship and activism and art making. But outside of that, I'm not sure. I do know that I've been told by folks that I've interviewed for the book project that they've all kind of moved to San Francisco because of the accessibility of the city. But outside of what I know, what little I know about the U.K., So how can people get in touch with you? They can get in touch with me, well, I guess through email. Okay. Is that okay? What do people usually give as they're like... If you have a We'd like your home address, please. (laughs) (laughs) You just supply us with that. um, If you have a website or if you have social media that you want... Yes, you do have a website. Oh my God, yes. Well, you also sell crafts. Yes, and the website is for the crafts that I make. They're like body positive, disability, queer positive arts, and it's my self-care. I love teaching, and by the way, I forgot to say, my students absolutely give me hope that there's good things on the way. And in addition to that, I need to take care of myself, so drawing is how I do it. Okay. So my website is called Crip Femme Crafts, and Crip is short for crippled, and it was a reclamation of the word crippled that started in the Bay Area, not in Los Angeles. I know the context is like radically different in Los Angeles, but it started in the Bay Area. Um, So it's C-R-I-P-F-E-M-M-E-C-R-A-F-T-S dot com. There you go. <laughs> I like how you all were like well, holding yeah. your breaths like, I, yeah. and where is it going? <laughs> well, the, I could watch you do that all day. It's also, I was spelling it out like in my head. It's also on your, your Instagram where people can. Yes. Okay. Yes. It's also our Instagram handle. And my email is S-K-A-F as in Frank, A-I at cpp.edu. Okay. And I check it all the time. 
<laughs> you're better than me. <laughs> and so, but you know what I started to do? I just have an hour where I do email and then that's it. Ah, uh, I get overwhelmed if it like I, I have a hard time. I yeah, it does. It does build up, but I think just because of the phone, that guys, never this off. is great content right like, here. I'm I just want to say, if you're editing out my Brunei joke, this also has to go. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know. I, think, I don't know if I accept that. Fair enough. You're the one in control. I'm just, I'm just. Okay, fine. Trusty lieutenant. Yeah. Fine. I mean, Jacob, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, they can't. Okay. <laughs> we'll have to wait for the next that's installment. That's how that happens. Yeah. Okay. Well, if anybody wants to tweet me, if you have any comments about this episode at G Dolsky or at In the Details Pod, and yeah, well, thank you so much for your time. I'm the Cal Poly Pomona professor. You've got your TEDx. Okay, this is great. Jacob's here. Thank you all for just. Thank you all for like asking and just being open to talking more about this. This This was really lovely. Okay. Bye. Bye.